Hello, and welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. Thanks as always for choosing to slow down and listen up with us today. Two quick announcements before we get started. You might have noticed an episode 11.5 go up just before this one. I was thinking about Sally McElwain's story, Eating Spaghetti in Brooklyn, 1978, one day after the episode aired, and thought there was something missing. Sure enough, when I looked back at the original story that she sent me, there was about a page and a half of essentially backstory at the beginning of the piece that was left out of the recording, but I remembered that it really hooked me into the piece, so I asked her about it and she said that she would record that part for us. So, episode 11.5, go check it out to hear Sally's full Eating Spaghetti in Brooklyn 1978 story. The second announcement is the debut of the Secondhand Stories newsletter. I'll remind you again at the end, but if you go to secondhandpodcast.com newsletter, you can sign up to get Secondhand Stories episodes straight to your inbox on the Sunday after the episode airs. So that gives you a few days. If you remember to listen to it before then, you could just ignore the email. But if you forget, or if we do something like miss a week, you'll always know when a new episode comes out. Now, on to the stories. First up is The Art of Body Combat by Emily Rose. Before I read her bio, I just want to say that I read this story multiple times, and each time I did, I picked up on another little clever detail. So really pay attention or go back and listen to this one a few times. Emily is a student at New York University. She likes fiction, prefers short stories, and began writing because it was fun, plain and simple. She continues writing because it has implicated her to be a more feeling human thing. She hopes to bestow a humanity to her characters and implicate her readers to act and feel. She has two dogs and two half-surviving plants that need watering. She works for a book startup called Bookster, that's B-O-O-K-S-T-R. It's great, check it out and plans to graduate with an individualized major in writing, literature, psycholinguistics in spring 2017. Emily Rose's story, The Art of Body Combat. He tells us his name is Johnny. He tells us he lives in the desert, and that the Arizona sun is white, not yellow. White, not yellow, he says, maybe once or a hundred times. Johnny has a shrewd sense for ordinary details about driving his kid across the desert under that blister of white, the dead coyotes in the road, dropping his kid at home with his ex, the smoke that fills his car, the substance he doesn't want to hit, but can't not hit once the kid's gone. When Johnny speaks, sometimes you want to close your eyes, call the senses to listen, listen so hard you hear the creak of language, words into syllables, syllables into sound, distilled. He has vocal cords that bunker low in his body, that make a rusty clamor, collide with discord, then smooth at the fulcrum fold of the throat. That first gruff hello can be followed to this grace, beginning to end, start to finish. I close my eyes and listen, because I have to listen. I always listen. We call him Johnny Chronic. He's a regular. When Johnny Chronic calls on Tuesday, I've been sitting at my desk for maybe an hour. Sarah is on the sofa, eating pretzel sticks and trying to hang her hair over the arm of the couch so that it touches the floor below. She arches with the pretzel steady between barred teeth until she feels ground, touchdown. What are you doing? It's Tuesday today, Johnny roughs out. I just dropped the kid off at his mother's. 
I'm waiting till she opens the door. Saint of woman she is, keeping him waiting in this heat. I close my eyes and listen. Johnny Chronic doesn't usually take long. We cut everyone off at 20 minutes, unless of course you want to go on with the caller. But Johnny Chronic isn't bad, just a little off. Minor substance abuse, minor dissociative tendencies, minor schizophrenia. There are other regulars, and their names are all written on the whiteboard that hangs on the wall above Sarah. Agoraphobic Ann has already called twice today. King Kush has been on the clock. There have been a handful of newbies, someone writes on the board, below the week's frequent callers. It's that time of year. The green writing is signed with a Christmas tree and a Jewish star. Today, Johnny Chronic tells me, is also Zach's birthday. I had to get the kid something, hell he goes through. You know. The treat was a surprise, he tells me. Something he bought on his way to pick Zach up from school. It was one of those sugar cookies, where they pile high the white frosting with the blue trim, dot two eyes, and call it a boy. They're Zach's favorite. I hear the metal flick of Johnny Chronic's lighter. He breaks off when he lights it, and only continues talking once the joint's been lit. There are different sounds when he inhales. The muscles and the singing strings dive deeper. The voice moves elsewhere in his body, far from me. He'll go to bed with these blue stains all over his face, no matter how much Lorraine scrubs. She worries the teachers will think they're bruises, but I think it'll look like a Turner watercolor. My boy, the blue Regi, a masterpiece. He laughs as he exhales, and the chords resurface. He's close to me again. I listen as he goes on about Turner, the ex named Lorraine, and the cookie with the white frosting, blue trim and eyes. Sugarcane eyes, he reminds me, not chocolate. When I put the phone down, it's just Sarah and me. It's always just Sarah and me. When we started volunteering, they told us to slot our names in the calendar, our time by extension. We were last to sign, but there were still plenty of empty boxes. We picked several blank slots, the ones that assured no postured weather talk, and, to Sarah's delight, no slap on the wrist for eating office snacks straight from the container. More than anything, we didn't want our names slotted near senior members. The ones that stuck around too long seemed off like they were flocking to the program, the phones, the callers, to bag something rabid, to hold something at arm's length. I don't want to get it, Sarah says when her line rings. I won't. Stop. Stop looking at me like that. Last week, Sarah got her first. The woman, who called herself Ina, answered the line already with a belly's worth of Demerol. She just wanted to talk. Sarah told me she stayed on until the end. We're taught in training how to take these kinds of calls. We learn how to talk a caller down, how to get an address, how to send a paramedic. They want us to hear it before they say it, to stay on the scent of that devotion to life they say we all share, if it's not already too late. It's a sterile business, these calls. It's listening, and it's not. They say it is, but I don't really know. Listen, from the Old English, listen on, obey. 
the old Irish, Glunim, I hear. The message of the training begins with, about compassion and support and refrain from suggestion, all that begins to fall away in these calls. Every pleasantry and pause is shorn off, and at the center of it all is force, obedience. Force to make things live, listening to prove agency. No one wants this call. Every volunteer wants the diagnosed and the medicated and the isolated. Not Sarah's call. Eventually, she answers, because she has to answer. It's Johnny Chronic again, she mouths. I reach for a pretzel. Sarah's voice is perfect for the job. I want to bottle it. Rich and smooth, not a fleck of indecision in it. It's the kind I trust. The kind I want to posit theories of humanity and goodness in. She gives all the appropriate ahs and rhythmic pauses, tracing the outline of a fallen pretzel on the notebook in front of her. Sometimes he calls more than once, like today. Sometimes he calls several times an hour, speaking about Lorraine and Zach, all the while puckering on a joint with you, pausing here and there to suck at it. From Sarah's voice, I know he's okay today. He's never suicidal, but he toys with ideas. This is fine. This is okay. We all indulge in this sometimes. When we leave the hotline office, the sun is already down. Except it's not really an office, and there's still a rim of red yolk at the horizon. The hotline is located at one of the inland schools, where they padlock the gates and bathrooms after six. Sarah drives tonight. Last week, after Sarah got her first, we went out for ice cream. But the ice cream parlor was closed, and we had to go to the burger joint instead. Bent over a bloody mess of onions and cheese, Sarah talked about grief as the inception of growth, the kickoff to the great, great soul cleanse, scrubbing the cerebral floor, finding the inner peace. It's not a two-step. I watched her flag down the waitress and ask to see the menu again. And I know what you're doing, I said, nodding to her half-eaten burger. She licked her fingers and wiped her mouth. You can feel it, you know. You're supposed to feel it, a something after a call like that. No, not... No, she said, waving it off. I mean, you can feel it on the phone. It? When the line goes quiet, there's a hum, a vibration, several seconds at least. You can feel the life, I mean. And then it gets stronger. And then it disappears. I looked at her for several seconds. She had a line of mustard on her cheek. In any way, I am reeling. Hurting, grieving, distraught. Feeling, I mean. Look, watch me reel. She winced, shoving the rest of the burger in her mouth. Soul cleansing, for Sarah, fell to the works of the body. Filling and emptying keeping score. It demanded time, too. My time. Mind and body, she kept saying, but her attention fell more to one than the other. Today we'll be practicing body combat, she dictates from behind the wheel, turning up the radio and breaking open a Kit Kat. 
She pulls into the parking lot, and when we walk into the gym, a spandex-clad woman hands each of us a class pass. Body combat, they read in black ink. Before class begins, I sneak to the back. The instructor walks in, another spandex-clad figure, her hair tied high and tight with militant discipline. She introduces herself and tells the class her story. Her hand flutters to her heart, and a couple of classmates draw their own palms close and salute, faces puckering with feeling. A few in the front drop their heads in approval and begin to arch their feet or roll out their shoulders. One motion follows the other. The instructor slaps her hands together, tells us, enough, let's begin, and turns to face the mirror for squats and lunges. Body combat, as I quickly learn, is exactly what it sounds like. It's a fight with your own frame, all the muscles and fat and strident lines of tissue that make and break motion. My body is supposed to follow the instructors. When she raises an arm, I raise an arm. When she squats, I squat. As the dip and rise gains momentum, I see her eye herself in the mirror, throwing herself a wink, a smile, a knowing glance. I try to match the motions, letting my body sag into chair pose for the moment of relief that comes before the binding tug. My muscles breathe quiet pleas, and I try to mask them with my breath. Deep breath in, deep breath out, the instructor says. I try to keep up, but the music is fast. Too many dips, too many raises, not enough time to unbend before the next cue. But the instructor keeps time. She's moving with her mirrored self intact, the two settling into a single chair when the music strikes the eight count. I scan the mirror for my own double and find a red-faced woman making shallow bends with her knees, arms outstretched in empty embrace rather than aimed high in whatever invocation this may be. My imagination buckles. There's some glitch in the system, some hiccup between the instructor's cue and my motion. My body is not my reflection, and her form is nowhere to be found in my own. The reflection leaps. I crouch. My arms go left. Hers go right. I follow the red-faced woman down, mirror to floor, and beeline back to my own body. A hamstring tugs, and I know it's the right one. My left glute gives a sort of gasp, and I know it's me. But something keeps me unsure. The instructor throws her double another smile, blows it a kiss. They're communicating some word I don't know, one that clips the distance and brings the combat to a stalemate. But I don't know it, and I can't do it. I can't body combat. Bodies and minds are no different. Sarah bites down on a protein bar after the class. The prior choreographs the latter, the latter the prior. Mind body, body mind. I couldn't follow the choreography, I tell her, staring blankly while she peels the foil wrapper back another inch. It's okay, it's okay, Johnny Chronic says next time I'm back at the hotline. That's what I keep telling myself. I'll get him back. Once I kick it, I'll get him back. His son has been gone a week now, but Johnny Chronic still drives by every day, parking behind the Ocotillos and high-stepping over the fallen red cacti bulbs to get a closer look. 
I bring it just in case. I would never use it. But what if I come across another coyote? I close my eyes and try to picture my version of Johnny Chronic crouched behind the cacti, watching his ex-wife and son. No, not picture. Visualize. Smell. Feel. There's a white sun above. The ex in the kitchen. The sun at the dining room table. Working on homework. Math problems. They aren't there. They left. I, I don't know where to. I'm still sitting in the car. I scrap the visual and start over. I ask Johnny why he thinks they left. I ask him to describe his setting. It's a calming technique. For him, but also for me. I'm sitting in my car. He breathes, pausing to light up. Brown below, blue above. Sky's tired. Looks like he can't wait for the day's end. It's after school time. Clock says 3.09. I pry the soft vowels from his words. Noon. School. Tired is too simple. Maybe I'm just tired. But the sky does look full. A little too ripe. Like it could rot and sour at any minute. Like the moon might have to rush up to hide the body, cover up the mess when dark breaks in. The vowels arrive in small exhales. Maybe he is tired. Maybe the sky is ripe. Every syllable sounds ready. The consonants too sharp. The vowels too round. I close my eyes and move my lips over the soft sounds again. Blue. Moon. He fills in the rest of the details. Johnny Chronic is leaning back in the driver's seat of his pickup. Rifle across his lap. Dry earth below. Holes in the brush that give way to nothing now. A view of an empty house. He says that from his car he can make them there. If he focuses hard enough, he can picture Lorraine in the kitchen and Zack at the dining room table. Talking, eating, he says. Homework. Math problems, I think. When he looks up again, the image won't stick. He knows that. But there's a moment where he can convince himself. A split second, really, where by some trick of shadow or windblown curtain, he can believe they're there. He takes another long inhale. It's a fault in my eyes, his voice says from somewhere deep. But I don't deny it. Don't deny the split-second glitch its due presence. It's a nasty trick I play with myself. His voice levels out again on the exhale. But the trick keeps him close. The joint is out. He pauses to light up again, and I wonder if he looks in the rearview mirror when he smokes, if he watches his mouth shape around the joint, pressed tight when he lights it, the first nascent plumes rolling out from the corners of his mouth. I wonder if he watches himself pronounce the world, all its loops and tricks. I just want my son, he says. I peel away from my own images, trying to push this picture of absence instead. Hard as I try, I can't not picture the boy. I can't not picture Zack at the kitchen table. Or, better yet, sitting shotgun with blue stains all over his face. Like an opening sore, every gone image returns. Lorraine and Zack... And the sky that is probably no longer blue, 
the sky that has probably already been replaced by the moon, crawl back from the recess of their own expulsion. Back into the scene I'm trying not to picture. All around Johnny Chronic are the absences, the vacancies, and he is in the middle of it all, with a gun across his lap. Later that week, Sarah asks if I can cover for her at a sitting job. I'm a full-grown woman with a full-time job, one that puts me in pantyhose in an office in a subordinating role from 9 to 5, but I call in sick. I don't know why. Sure, I tell her. I'll cover. What's the address? When I get to the house, I'm told to pick up the children. The school mistakes me for their mother. I eye them through the rearview mirror. The younger of the two has dirt across his face. Baseball practice today. And the older, the girl, is telling me about the test she has in class later this week. History of religion. She asks me to quiz her, and I do. Who, what, when, where, and why, for every term, she says. This week is just Judaism. I ask her about Abraham and Moses in the Torah. The where always seems to be Canaan. Dates are thrown out, and she reminds me, BCE, not BC. No one uses BC anymore. Around 1800 is the birth of Abraham and monotheism. In 1250, Moses crosses the Red Sea. In 1220, Saul rises to power and unites the twelve tribes. She tells me how Abraham was supposed to kill his son, an offering to God in the white sky above, but how God nixed that one last minute. Something happens in 920, but I can't remember the what. By the time we arrive at their place, I know a great deal about Judaism. Conceptually, very little, but the dates are of the utmost priority, the girl reminds me, sucking on a pigtail. It's all about the when. Once they've had their snacks, I help the younger with his homework. He has a spelling test next week. This I can handle. Fourth grade spelling. I know all about it. Organic, I say. Organic, he pauses. O-R-G-A-N-I-C. Organic. Meaning related to the body, meaning related to life meaning this salad is organic, and the synonym, fresh. Fresh and organic are synonyms. Okay, I tell him. Neutral. Neutral. N-U-E-T-R-A-L. Neutral, meaning not picking a side, as in a war, meaning there were no neutral countries in the war, A synonym for neutral is indifferent. I make the necessary corrections and move on to the rest of the words. They pay me 100 for the day and an extra 20 for the hassle. It's more than I'd make at my office job. On the way home, I think about all the business deals made with God. Prayers and handshakes. I think about the Red Sea cracking and splitting into slabs and what a relief it must be to step into the sea. What a burden to emerge again. Stopped at the light, I watch an old man cross the street, an unlit cigarette tucked behind his ear.
The next time Johnny Chronic calls, Lorraine and Zach are back in the house. At first, he thought it was the glitch again, the split-second delay when the eyes are still reeling from Daydream. But then he saw movement, color, a body, Lorraine, Zach at the kitchen table. He puts down the phone to step out of the car and watch them through the openings in the brush. I wait for his return and listen to nothing. My own breath returned as static. When he picks up the receiver again, he tells me not what he saw, but what he sees, held in his hands in the driver's seat of the pickup. They were ruby last time they were home. The bulbs on the ground are jam red now. The bloom season should have ended months ago. You shouldn't even be here. Have you ever seen Ocotillo flowers? I tell him no, and he begins to tell me about the inch-long flowers, long, lean petals curled into the shape of a bullet. When they begin to bloom, he tells me, the petals peel back, the spat of yellow pollen comes up, and the hummingbirds and carpenter bees sniff them out. He sometimes takes a handful and scatters them on a salad. The bulbs are tangy. Supposedly, they can be placed on fresh wounds, too, to slow the body's escape. He remembers vases of the blooms, all over his old place with the rain, jars of dried flowers on the bedside table. He remembers throwing the jars to the ground and watching the glass break before the bulbs scattered, always spreading quieter than he had hoped, rolling submissively across the wood floor. One year, after a big bloom, after Lorraine put all the fresh flowers in vases and all the dead ones in jars, Johnny Chronic went through every room and smashed them, every one of them. The house was littered with the flowers until Lorraine and Zach returned from her mother's, and Johnny Chronic had to leave his narcotic stupor to sweep them up. By that point, all the bulbs, even the freshest, were as dark and dried as raisins. Yes, I'm still here, I tell him. I'm still listening. Listening and remembering the early calls between us. I know Johnny Chronic has a history of violence. That's why he can't see Zach. His meds make him subdued. They make discrimination and discernment difficult. The drugs don't help either. They only make him angry. In a Thorazine days, he's lashed out at Lorraine, thrown vases in jars, and bruised his knuckles on the walls. He never wanted to hit her. He never meant to strike him. Johnny Chronic is still on the meds. He still gets angry, has thoughts about breaking things or hurting Lorraine, but he doesn't really want to. In one of our first calls, he told me about the thoughts he had as a boy, the thoughts he sometimes still thinks on, joint smoke hovering around them. He went on once for an hour about the dreams, nightmarish ecstasies where horror film actresses ran around in skimpy underwear, masked figures chasing them with machetes and chainsaws, weapons of various forms. He was particular when he talked about these childhood dreams, detailed. He didn't really want to hurt women, he told me, especially in the dreams about Lorraine. But the idea had fascinated him as a boy. It fascinated him as a man. He always broke things after the dreams because he felt guilty about the obsession, guilty and scared. Powerless? I had wanted to ask when he first told me, but I held back. 
There was an unbridled and naked power in the simple question, a cutting away to an understanding I had about Johnny, an understanding of helplessness that the hotline didn't teach us. Helplessness under the weight of our bodies. Bodies that ingested medicine and spat out side effects. Bodies with minds and fascinations. Disobedient bodies. On the phone now, he's telling me about collecting the jam red flowers for the jar on his bedside, cupping them in his hands and pocketing them for later. After we say our goodbyes, the line goes dead. The next time Sarah takes me to body combat, I keep my eye on the mirror. Before class, I practice. The mirror lifts, I lift. The mirror bends, I bend. Mind body, body mind, Sarah is chanting. When the instructor puts on the samba music and settles into her chair, I do too. My chair is different, not quite as low, not quite as rigid, but a good chair nonetheless. I focus on the instructor and the instructor's image. I look to my image to make the click between it and me. I look more like myself in this mirror than I do in any other, in chair position, arms reaching out. My body moves better this time, keeping step with the mirror, but I also look estranged from myself, next to all these other bodies moving in time. Looking around, I could just as easily land on my own face as I could in others. But that one is me, and those are them. If you think about the border too long, you confuse yourself. If you stare too hard, the frontiers of selfhood bleed out, and the faces begin to blend. I look at other bodies, seeing reflections before I see them. They are the same, but different, easily mistaken. The chairs look more real in the mirror, maybe, their invisibility more fathomable. There is a heavyset woman beside me, heaving. She opens her mouth to let out a hiss or a breath, and settles deeper into her chair with closed eyes. Something hot and absolute catches me by the throat, and I want to call it admiration. The instructor counts down from eight. The woman doesn't drop a hand to wipe her face or fix the pant leg that's been flicked halfway up her shin. Her commitment is total. The arms are so still, I imagine she's made of wax. I want to lean over to touch her, but even the extension of my mind makes my body ache. I'm settling deeper into chair, too. Except chair is the wrong word. It's the most natural shape, the reach and the crouch, and the eyes drawn upward. It feels primal and essential, like some celestial calling to an irretrievable blank. 4. There's no rise in that voice, no bargain. The woman with the wax arms is close to the ground now, and her stomach sits round on her knees. Her left leg sags and croaks for a fraction of a second, and the tug is there. A hamstring pulls that is not my own. But she is resilient and goes stiff once more. I feel the hot in my throat sink deeper. I'm looking at her, trying to make her more real. I can manage everything about her except the arms, silken wax, immobile. She teeters, and I feel the hamstring again, but only with a dull ache somewhere distant, between things. I don't know where. 
It lasts only a split second. The ache goes smooth and numb, and in another breath, it's gone. She's sitting in chair now, just as she always was. I have the sound of breath and nothing more. At one, my body goes slack and extends vertically out of the crouch. Everyone rises around me. We look around for the next cue, but class is over. The instructor turns from the mirror and presses her palms together, pleased with our effort. After class, Sarah has to pick up the kids. Duty calls, she says. I ask her about them. How are the spelling words going? Are Abraham and the gang still stuck in Canaan? That's a good and an affirmative, she says. Highest reviews from mom and dad, by the way. I usually just take them to the park to wear them out. Kudos to you getting the homework done and all that. Walking to the car, a group of older women with swim caps and towels around their waists waddle past the locker room. One of them throws her head back laughing, swinging a blood-red cap in her hand. Left hand. Hey, Sarah says, from a few steps ahead, turning back to me. Why don't you come along, just to pick them up, just to say hi? I can drop you off after I grab the kids. Okay, I tell her. I have nothing better to do. I've been calling in sick to work a lot lately, too distracted with everything. Last week, my boss caught me staring into the coffee pot. When we pick them up, the kids shuffle into the back. From the passenger seat, I turn around to look at them. The boy has another streak of dirt on his face, the girl two pigtails limp at her shoulders. I don't say anything. They don't see me. They're looking out the window, where a man is selling oranges, two for one, by the freeway entrance. Who wants an orange from some smelly old homeless man? The younger poses to no one in particular. The older girl looks over, twists her mouth into the shape of concern, and looks away. She turns her focus instead to getting a pigtail into her mouth, hands-free, rolling her shoulders and bobbing after it with her mouth agape. Sarah nudges me. Stop staring, will you? I draw my eyes to the road ahead, fat gray lanes and trees on both sides. I can just barely hold each scene as we drive along before the next patch of road unfolds. It's all green and gray, but there's no consistency. I feel something slide up beside me on the center console. Mom said someone needs to quiz him, the girl whispers. The confession is followed by a swift kick to her rear end in a hushed, shut up, from behind her. Sarah looks over at me to mouth that word. Please? The boy rolls his head back and gives a grunt of submission, handing me the flashcards without even looking at me. Okay, I tell him. Neutral. Neutral. N-E-U-T-R-A-L. Neutral. Meaning not picking a side as in an argument meaning he was neutral to their fighting. A synonym for neutral is indifferent. Okay, I tell him. Empathy. Empathy. E-M-P-A-T-H-Y, meaning to understand feelings, meaning she felt empathy for the boy, and a synonym is pity. I look the boy over, warily, Understand someone's feelings? 
I don't know, he says, but I don't think the test will ask me about that. The other words in the sentence don't need to be spelled right. Just the one. Okay. Pity? Pity. Sarah drops me off at home. Standing on the curb to watch them leave, I see the girl finally got the pigtail into her mouth, and the boy is staring at me. The window casts a blue tint on his face, the dirt a straight of cobalt across his forehead. I feel caught on the curb, transfixed, until a knife of white severs the glance, and I have to bring my hand to my eyes to block the sun, see again, meet his eyes. But by this time they've already driven off. They're far down the road, and I'm left only with an afterimage of inky blues and watery shapes. Johnny's worse today. There are no bulbs on the ground, no scarlet fleck to wander at. How how am I supposed to how am I supposed to uh, I don't know. He's not smoking today, but his voice rises and falls out of habit. Maybe I imagine it. His breath picks up, and mine leaps to match it. We need to calm down. I ask him to tell me what he's doing, and he tells me. I feel the chill of night, the white sky nowhere in sight this hour of the evening. I hear the crickets, see the light on in the kitchen, see the dots of light that run down the desert strip and up the lip of a ridge beyond Lorraine's house. I wait for the flick of the lighter that doesn't come. What are you doing? I'm here, I tell him. It's Thursday. I'm on the phone with you. Are you alone? He asks. Sarah is off the clock tonight, babysitting again. But are you alone? He presses, after I've already answered. It takes me a minute. Yes, I say. I don't know why I say it, or if I mean it, but it barrels out from my throat with level certainty. It sounds like a prayer. The long pause is filled with the sound of crickets, and every once in a while, Johnny strums on the silver of his rifle. Tinny music. Nasty trick we play to pretend we're not. Nastier still to say we may be. The tinny chorus plays. I think of Lorraine and Zack, but I don't see them in the car. The lack sits there instead. I think you're here he says, in the passenger seat. I will the image. I can pull the lever on the right side of the seat to recline another inch, roll down the windows to feel the heat. I look through the windshield at the night sky. There's more stars here, millions of them. The crickets are louder, and the sound is more piercing with the window down. Their songs repeat, and I lose track of where one ends and the next begins. Each new cry insists on the prior. I don't respond because I don't know if he's right. But I think I'm not here. I think I'm in another place, burrowed under the wall and waving back at myself from the other side. Eventually, one of us puts the phone down. Eventually, it all stops. There are questions. Where's and why's, maybe even a when. I haven't heard from Johnny in a few weeks. 
The tough part is you don't know the reasons, the why someone stops calling. I don't know where Johnny is, or if he quit his substance, or if he got his kid back. My gut tells me no, but I don't know why or if I should trust it. A part of me thinks, maybe. Maybe he's still sitting in his pickup, gun across his lap, the Ocotillo trees, peppering the ground with red bulbs again. Maybe another coyote did come by, and maybe he did shoot it with his rifle, or something worse. Maybe the kid and the ex are home this time, light on in the kitchen. Maybe divine intervention did as advertised, intervened. There are still questions. Every time the line rings, I think of the sun, pale. It's white, not yellow, not the color a kid might paint with his fingers. Everything is a shade of white and red, yellow, nowhere on the spectrum. Next up, we have Somehow Always Getting It Right by Carol Guess and Elizabeth Colon. Carol Guess is the author of 16 books of poetry and prose, including Doll Studies, Forensics, and Tinderbox Lawn. She's a professor of English at Western Washington University. Elizabeth J. Colon is most recently the author of What Weaponry? A Novel in Prose Poems. Other books include poetry collections, Money for Sunsets, Lambda Literary Award finalist in 2011, and Waiting Up for the End of the World, Conspiracies, Flash Fiction Collection, Dear Mother Monster, Dear Daughter Mistake, Long Poem Slash Lyric Essay Hybrid, The Green Condition, and Fiction Collaboration, You're Sick. She lives in the Pacific Northwest. Elizabeth Colon, reading... Somehow Always Getting It Right. Somehow Always Getting It Right by Elizabeth J. Cullen and Carol Guess. I want to say to you, tell me how to be, and I'll be that. I want to say, you won't catch me standing in the rain. But you come home, and I'm in the driveway staring at the sky, staring at the negative space between tree branches, wet to the bone and getting wetter. I tell you I broke three bones as a child. My left ring finger, my right thumb, my left arm. But I didn't break any of them. Other people did. Is this a useful distinction? When you get home, new tires on new gravel, new house and new yard, it shakes me out of myself, reverie or thoughtlessness. I used to think I could get high from breathing regular air deeply if it was cold enough and the breath deep enough. Then I learned this was true. There's a jumpstart effect to a few deep breaths like that. Maybe why the doctor told me to take deep breaths when... What are you doing, you say? Something that doesn't seem like a question. What do I answer, standing here, getting wet, feeling her, waiting for you to get home? They buried her in a communion gown. She'd never had communion, but it was the prettiest thing she owned. Like a tiny bride is all I kept thinking. 
like a tiny bride for Jesus or some fucking shit, fuck you universe, fuck you God and Jesus. My thumb is now double-jointed. Sometimes I can't do anything until it cracks, and sometimes it won't crack. I just thought of something, I say. Then something about the trees and the owl. And you say, come inside. And I say, okay, and still stand there getting wet. And you shake your head and beep the car locked and go inside. I want to say I'm trying as hard as I can. But at what? And I'm afraid you'll ask and I won't have the answer again. I got my first bloody nose in the first grade. Yes, it was a fight. Yes, I won. I wanted someone to tell me just once that I was scrappy, but no one ever did. You turn the porch light on and it feels like a statement, but one I can't decipher. I think of all the lights I've ever seen go on, sunrises and everything. Mostly I think about concerts and all their colored lights. I like them because there's no utility. Most are just for show. What is gained from seeing Dylan in red and then green and then blue? Would I be understandable if punctuated by the right light, the right hue? My therapist says I miss her. I think it's something else. New house, new yard, new porch, new door. I'll open the door and you'll talk in circles. Not about us, not about Cora, just random things that happened at work. Brown eyes, wide nose. She loved cats and seagulls, skateboarding and gum. Cora ran so fast she won races at school. Favorite color, pine tree green. Favorite song, whatever was playing. She was eight years old, took Route 7 to school. Got off the bus four stops early that day. The gas station at the end of Fairview sold strawberry milk and candy cigarettes. She was crossing the street, school bus flashing red blinkers. Someone in a hurry, someone on their cell. The day of her ending, something happened to language that keeps on happening. Suddenly there are words I couldn't say. Not that I didn't want to, just that I couldn't. I started a list because I could still write them down. Argyle, spruce, gymnasium, puncture. For a while I drove to Cora's school every day. I followed the bus to make sure her friends got off at the right stop. Then I started following them to make sure they went straight home. Then it seemed easier to ride the bus, to eat lunch with her friends in the lunchroom at school. I asked to enroll. I did, that's true. I had trouble with language and time on my hands. You were further away than you'd ever been. In the end, everyone wears a blindfold. Isn't that how the story goes? What story, you said. The story I wrote. Your girlfriend lived two hours south on a hill in a city bisected by bridges. It was something you did. A hobby. A craft. Like knitting, you said. Like jogging. Like pie. After Cora died, I wanted to know everything about you to make up for the giant hole in my chest. So I met the girl you played with on Fridays. She was brittle and pretty, with Betty Page bangs. Sometimes I write stories in my head because I want the ending I want, and that's the only way I'm going to get it. My therapist says I have abandonment issues, issues with women, issues with men. 
I told my therapist that the girl with Betty Page bangs looks like a supermodel, like what holds up a bra at Victoria's Secret. My therapist looked confused. It was getting harder to tell the truth, and now here I was, trying to explain my spouse's fetish to a stranger in loafers. How you were sometimes someone else with someone else, but never with me. How I'd asked for you to be that someone with me, but you said I was someone who couldn't see you. How I'd seen glimpses and felt more alone. How the girl with bangs kept part of you gone. Darlene, I said, who names their kid that? My therapist gave me a glazed therapy gaze. All of us have myriad selves. Cora was dead. She had only one self. You had so many and I had to share. When I got home, the fake owl was lying in the grass, gravel bleeding from a home in its back. Cora loved the fake owl, carried it like a baby, fed it rocks to keep it from tipping. It was supposed to scare real birds away from our windows, giant glass rectangles reflecting pale green. The week we moved in, we lost three birds. The first bird died, turned a bone on our porch. The third fell outside and we dug a low grave. But the second bird was trapped inside, came in through the chimney, got stuck in the pipe. I was home alone. You'd gone to the store. Cora had soccer and I had this bird. I opened the door to the wood stove and cowered. When it flew out, it flew directly for glass. The bird and I spent an hour chasing reflections. It smashed into windows, fell dead to the floor, rose up again, bleeding, perched on the bookshelves. We had cathedral ceilings and it froze on the beams. In retrospect, everything's rosy as I toss the blanket over the bird the very first time it strikes glass. I cup it gently under the blanket, and it doesn't protest as I carry it outside. In real time, it flew into windows, fell dead, fluttered to life just before I could save it, then perched somewhere I couldn't reach. As I approached, it flew toward the windows again. When I heard your key in the lock, I cried. You walked with me to where the bird lay after its latest strike, legs stiff in the air. It's dead. No, its legs just do that. But you were bending over, touching its wings. Its tiny chest wasn't breathing or stirring. The driver stopped, got out of her car. A witness says Cora was breathing, was talking. The driver tried to pick her up because panic does that, does the wrong thing. Panic is when the right thing won't save you. When I think of the woman who killed my daughter, I call her my daughter. We say ours. We say love. For eight days after, we cleaned spots of red off the shelves. Books battered by birdwing had to be set right. Smudges on the wall. Smudges on windows. For eight days after, I visited the stain in the road. At home, I sat upright, unmoving for hours. I stood on the lawn and looked down at the little graves. The stones Cora had placed there, dead flowers crusting brown. They had lives, she had said. They had goals. What did she know? A spelling bee she wanted to win, but Argyle took her down in the fourth round. A boy she wanted to be or to touch. She cried on the couch about how soft his hair was. Isn't she young, we said? Isn't she precocious? 
we started the talk about birds, about bees, but she'd already learned it from YouTube. For eight days, I sat Shiva, scarves covering mirrors. You peeked through to check your hair on the way out the door. We aren't even Jewish. But I didn't care. Eight days, I let things burn on the stove while I walked out to the road. Eight days. Then followed her friends at school until the principal told me to stop. Teachers told me to stop. Parents pleaded with me. Teachers and parents and secretaries lined the office. No one said intervention, but that's what it was. Pink backpack high, awkward brace face high, glossy cherry chapstick high, smell of pantene on a juvenile head high. Her pillow had lost her scent, and I stood in the road. After, I walked to the mall on the other side of town, stared at small creatures in carts, small creatures in strollers, and the ones holding hands and the ones not holding hands wandering racks unattended. It started with a little girl named Rebecca. I'm going to call you Cora. Rebecca, she said. I took her hand, sticky from something red on her face. Her mother was trying on swimsuits. Lollipop, I said, wiping her hand on my jeans. Sherbert. How was it, Cora? Cora shrugged. Do you want another Sherbert, Cora? Rebecca. Do you want another, Rebecca? She shrugged. How old are you? She shrugged her shoulders. Five? She said, I think so. I was imagining her taller, a little bit older, a little more red in her hair. Rebecca, her mother called from inside the shiny shut door we'd carefully moved away from. Rebecca, get over here, her mother said, then opened the door. When I returned home that night and you weren't there, I carved a space for myself in the living room couch. I covered myself in leaves and fell asleep watching lights blinker on and off in neighbors' houses through the trees. I woke up underwater, or I didn't wake up at all. I saw you above me, the wave or riding on it, immersed but not drowning. Thrashing arms but not drowning. You dance so much it's hard to know if you're struggling at all. The second one wore a green coat with fur around the collar and looked nothing like her. Not the right age or hair color, not the tea olive smell of her skin, asked no questions, did not count off-color cars in the parking lot. Orange, Cora used to say. Look at that. Bright orange and silver orange, two lizard green, one pink one. Look at that pink car, I said to the girl. The license plate said Kitty. The girl said nothing. Look at that green one. Nothing. Go back inside, I said. Go back. And when she didn't, I realized I had to let go of her hand. Go, I said, and she did. And there was the one who cried, and of course I returned her immediately. I'm so sorry, I said over and over. I'm so sorry. While the car dragged itself back to the fire lane in front of Target. And the one who ordered french fries but wouldn't eat them. I ordered you fries. I don't want them, she said. You said you did, I said. No, I didn't. And the one who called me Auntie Grandma. And the one who could manage the Honda's sticky buckle herself. And the one who sounded right, knew all the right moves, but had dark, curly hair. It couldn't be her. 
Would I have to wait until Cora was reborn? How long would that take? And should I look for her younger? Pull her from cribs or from strollers? All I wanted was to hold her hand. Stop seeing her lifeless. Stop seeing that stain in the road. What used to be our daughter. I wanted her giggling at the antics of squirrels. Her stories of alien abduction. I wanted her babble about dinosaurs, all of the names and all of their faces crayoned into the wall. I wanted to sing all those songs from all those terrible movies. I wanted her back again. Her hair and her breath, her pillow, those candy cigarettes, ring pops, licorice. How she loved Brussels sprouts but wouldn't eat green beans, loved onions but not peanut butter. The way she demanded jam all the way to the edge of her toast. I would have given anything to make her breakfast. And then there was the one who bolted when the car stopped, ran off like an animal uncaged across a dark parking lot. I could get none of them home into the next prettiest dress, none with their hair just right, none to call me mama. Counterpoint to the rain and dark clouds, inside a haze of synth pop, Erasure and tears for fears. A room where the light won't find you. Maybe all I needed was to be in this with someone. Holding hands while the world crashes down. In two lines of text, two black marks on the shoulder. Maybe all I needed was for you to come home. Between the curb and the weeds. Between the car roof and the dashboard, the endless road running at me movie of a world. Yet still in my car I'm invisible. Yet still in my car I continue unseen. Hand on the stick shift, a bag of Oreos, some little jacket, some lock of hair. Thanks to our authors for today's stories. Thanks to my co-producer Colleen Stewart. And thanks to you for slowing down and listening up today. You can find Carol Guess's books on Amazon or her website, carolguessbooks.com. And be sure to check out Elizabeth Colon's latest book, Wet Weaponry, which can be found at blacklawrence.com. Don't forget to go to secondhandpodcast.com newsletter to sign up for one email once every two weeks, reminding you about the Secondhand Stories episode. And as always, please go review us on iTunes. We'll be back again in two weeks. Thanks.